I'm on the phone with Pavan Lal, a very accomplished senior editor, writer, and watch collector. How are you, Pavan? I'm great, uh, Amit. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here on this uh, chat with you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to catching up and exchanging views on what's been happening in the world of watches. I met through a mutual friend, uh, Alka, and she put us in touch together. And I believe you went to school with her son, right? That's right. We had a common friend who put us in touch. And uh, I reached out to you because you were, uh, I think, just looking to dip your toes into getting uh, more plugged in into what is happening in the watch industry in India. And that's how we got connected a couple of years ago. So. Yeah, it was, it was great. And then Pavan reached out to me for, uh, he's a writer for Fortune India. And he did a, uh, a piece on a brand called Graham Watches, which has been around forever. And uh, he asked me to contribute, and I was happy to do it. You know, the rest is history. Exactly. The rest, as they say, is history. About a year later, I had written a piece about the Moon Swatch, uh, the collaboration with Swatch and Omega. And Pavan was, I asked Pavan if he would be kind enough to contribute, and he did. He really helped making that story much more rounded uh, as I got some views of many colleagues, of about a, a few different colleagues within the industry. So thanks for that, man. I appreciate it. No, not at all. And you know, I mean, the funny thing was when you reached out, I had just returned from Switzerland and actually had a meeting with the Swatch group and with the bosses at Omega Watches. And it was, uh, it was kind of uncanny that you reached out because I had tried to drive through a Swatch boutique in Switzerland in BN and, and just couldn't get my hands on uh, a moon Swatch, any of the different editions and so i think the timing was uh, really like serendipity when you called and i said okay yeah sure i'd love to do this because you know <laughs> i just got back from there and i know exactly what's going on well you know it's all uh, no pun intended but it's all about timing right and um absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, yeah. and and i think that uh you know pavan uh, not only is he a writer but he's a uh, an avid collector of watches um, so just to give a, a little bit of insight, how did, how did watches come to you? Like, what was it about, uh, actually, was it the mechanics? Was it the history? Uh, I think a little bit of all of the above. And, uh, you know, uh, I had a ton of friends like yourself in Calcutta as well as in Texas where I actually went to college. And, uh, you know, you constantly read about how uh, a watch is something that says the most about you because it's something that you you look at constantly. It's always on your wrist, and in some senses, it's it's kind of like a pair of shoes, right? It defines uh, what you're using a certain uh, implement or a certain accessory for, and and it, it is kind of true, right? And I, I still remember, I think about 25 years or so ago, the first watch that I actually bought was a, a Tag Heuer Quartz Aqua Racer. A, it was a battery-operated watch, and Tiger, as we know, uh, used to make them back in the day. And while uh, quartz watches are not something that I, I actively pursue today, uh, the, the Tiger 200-meter Aquarius was actually a pretty, a pretty good quality watch, great bang for the buck, you know, high-quality steel, sapphire crystal, uh, luminous markers, a design aesthetic in red and blue, or red and black, like the Coke colors of uh, some of the... The, the Rolexes that you see, a uh, net net for a, for a young kid, it was a, it was a pretty tantalizing buy. Uh, of course, as I went through the motions, I realized that I needed to upgrade it. And I guess you could say that's how I got sucked into the whole game. 
and then went uh, from brand to brand and got deeper into the whole rabbit hole. So I think in some senses, that's a recap of it. Of course, the truth is much more complex, you know, because uh, Amit, you know better than most people that every brand has its own history, every movement, every type of watch, chronograph, for example, can really be a universe of its own. And so, uh, you know, one typically makes mistakes as a young budding collector in terms of trying to do everything all the time, everywhere. That sort of evens itself out pretty quickly. It doesn't matter what your budget or your pocket book size is because you realize you can't do everything, right? And I think in a, in a matter of a few years, that's the way I went as well. I started becoming more focused and streamlined in terms of what I wanted, what I liked, and how I appreciated the field of horology. Basically, Tag Heuer was the gateway drug into watch collecting. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. And, yeah. and, and, and at that point, had you known anything about Tag's history? Like with, with, with their... Uh, not very much, to be honest. I did read up about them and realized they had uh, uh, a bit of a history in terms of sporting watches and diving watches and that Hoyer was the original. And right. And that's how it all came together. But of course, you got to realize this is, uh, you know, not really pre-internet, but certainly before a lot of information was made available Absolutely. Uh, on open access in public. And it was also, I, I guess you could say, well before, uh, you know, digital marketing and the way that information... Instagram and right? so on and so forth, where, where we could Absolutely. just get it in our fingertips All in 20... All I did know, Amit, was that whenever somebody looked at it, it caught their eye. And they said, wow, that's a pretty cool watch. Is that a tag wire? And uh, yeah, so <laughs> it got a lot of attention, which led me to believe I've done something right. Well, absolutely. Which brings me to my next question, which is like, you also write about, you write about many different things. Watches is just one of the things you happen to write about. You write about cars, you write about spirits, um, uh, meaning alcoholic spirits, not, not, um, so just, just for all of those astrology enthusiasts out there, he does not do that as far as I know. But, um, you know, when would you say today, because you kind of you and I are kind of around the same age, we're in our mid 40s, more or less. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Would you say that today the watch has almost taken over what the car used to mean to us, maybe as a status symbol? But it's sort of more immediate in the sense that. You know, with a car, you park it, you tell someone you have it, they don't believe it till you see it. A watch is something you can sleep with, right? It's something you can travel with. It's, it's, it's so easily transportable. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? Hey, man, you know, that's really an interesting perspective with a, with a very, very uh, deep question. Because the fact of the matter is, like, and kind of like I was saying a minute or two ago, right? Uh, the watch is really the most defining thing about you when it comes to men, uh, typically, people say when it comes to men, really the two places you can afford a little bit of style and and uh, splash and color are your cars and your watches, right? Nobody's going to see where you live. Nobody's going to come and check out your house sure. on a day-to-day day -day basis. But I would say the watch is even further up on the metric scale because you, if you're going for a business meeting to meet a law firm or uh, meet a CEO or a, a potential partner, you're wearing a watch. You're not going to drive your car up the elevator to park it in front of his uh, you know, sweet. So people don't really know what you drive or really care until they see you in it. But a watch is something that's entirely visible. Now, I do believe to a significant extent that watches perhaps also uh, in today's digital era uh, likely to be 
the last bastion of what you could call uh, a luxury accessory for men. You know, the world of mobility, Amit, is changing so fast. And, and as you correctly mentioned, I cover automobiles as well as an industry, that you're watching how electric vehicles are sort of leveling the playing field for uh, really super fast luxury cars. Look at cars like Ferraris and Lamborghinis or BMW and Mercedes and Audis, right? Sure. Today you have uh, uh, brands that are arguably much lesser or lower on the value totem pole, a Kia, a Hyundai, a Honda. These are all vehicles that with an electric drivetrain and engine can possibly accelerate as fast, as smoothly, as quickly, right? Uh, you have a lot of commoditization happening. And again, I'm coming back to Kia because it's a great example of how they've hired automobile designers across the world from uh, erstwhile luxury companies like BMW and are driving to create new shapes and designs that uh, can hold their own in the face of pretty much anything. Uh, you know, I, it's a point of concern for super luxury and high performance cars to note that uh, tomorrow uh, a vehicle that is made by a manufacturer with uh, uh, less pedigree than them can actually perform at speeds and accelerate as fast as the best thing that they can manufacture at a fraction of the cost. So I, I think the world of automobiles is going to see, uh, you know, a lot of shifts in the years to come. And remember, we're just at the beginning of the EV cycle, right? Yeah. But even I can't even imagine what's going to happen five or ten years from now, right? Are we going to have Hondas and Toyotas that perform like Ferraris or this flick of a button? The answer is probably yes. They may not look like them. They won't be as expensive as them. And they won't have badge value. I don't think you can apply the same uh, filters or the same principles to something like maybe a vintage Rolex Daytona Cosmograph, for example, right? Right. Because for, for, for starters, there's only so many units that are made. You can't replicate that, right? Uh, there's only a limited number of moon watches or what we call the Omega Speedmaster made in the 1960s. You're not going to be able to replicate a vintage story. And I think the, the, the short answer to your question, uh, Amit, is that in many ways, uh, watches are more akin to art than functional utilitarian objects like, say, houses or cars. Right, right, because people really don't use them for the utility that they they perform. They use them more for the aesthetical value or how they feel about it or how it well, makes them look. Absolutely, right? I mean, why do you need a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars solid gold watch that just tells you the time? Right? Something that's like a really rare Audemars limited edition Audemars Piguet, right? Sure. I mean, you could argue that a two hundred dollar Apple Watch does the same thing, but you're doing it for different reasons, right? You're doing it arguably for style. You're doing it arguably for the heritage, for the craftsmanship, for the mechanical wizardry that goes into creating these pieces of machinery. I think those are reasons that are not going to uh, be easily replaced no matter how far digital technology progresses in creating smartwatches and uh, you know, more commoditized devices that tell you the time in the future. I don't think it's going to happen. That's my personal point of view. Well, I think, I think the digital, the, you know, like the Apple Watch and all these other smartwatches, when they first came out, I was really pissed off. I thought it was a joke, right? And then after, after I kind of settled down and, and, and had a, a shot of whiskey, I realized that, you know what? The Apple Watch is the gateway drug really into watch collecting. Because after, after somebody wears one, because they all kind of look the same, they all kind of look 
very sort of clinical. There's no, there, I mean, yeah, they may perform incredible functions. They may make you feel like a secret agent. You could take your blood pressure. You can talk on it, whatever. But they all kind of look the same, even though you can download different screens and different, you know, different brands have different things available for, for different, you know, applications. But the person that's buying an Apple Watch tomorrow that may not have bought an Apple Watch before will now say to themselves or may not, hey, I want something nicer. You know, maybe I want something more, I want something mechanical. And who make, because to me, like a watch is the last great thing we have as a man, right? That it's like one of those old world things we have as a man that goes back hundreds of years, that's still around. You can get it in automatic, you can get it in quartz, you can get it in manual wind. And you know what I'm realizing, just like you said, as we're talking about how Kia and a lot of these other brands that are less expensive than Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Aston Martins and all this stuff, they're making cars that are, that are being able to perform at that level, maybe not as limited, maybe not as well finished, maybe not as, you know, whatever. But similarly, we have watch brands doing the same thing. Like if you take a look at the Tissot Powermatic 80 and you put that toe to toe up against like even an Audemars Piquet Royal Oak, does it have the does it have the recognition an AP has as a collector or as I've arrived or no it doesn't but does it have the history of as a brand does it have the value does it have the movement does it have the finishing of a watch that punches 10 times uh, more than its weight absolutely for for like the tax or less than the tax on an AP Royal Oak so I think there's a lot of similarities between the car business and the watch business. Um, and I'm sure you Absolutely. see that as well. I, I, I would go ahead and say, uh, you know, and stretch that a little further within the world of watches, right? I mean, we talked about the Rolex uh, Daytona a little while ago. If you look at Tudor, which is a sister brand, albeit at uh, lower prices, exactly. uh, you know, Tudor's chronographs and Tudor's watches are very, very high quality, arguably of the same DNA yep. and, and you know, uh, available at lower price points and available, which is a big deal. In if, if you look at the way that the world of watches has migrated from being uh, uh, dominated by Swiss companies, which I believe will continue for a while to come, yep. it's not stopped there. I mean, today you have uh, corporations that are, are Japanese that are you know, creating really world-class pieces, the Grand Seiko. Amazing, example, right? amazing no, my, stuff, amazing stuff. Exactly. So, Amit, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, Grand Seiko today, by some experts, is compared to the holy grail of top quality watchmaking across the world, right? Now, I have to be honest, I've never owned a Grand Seiko, so I can't speak firsthand, but basis what I read and what I hear, uh, a lot of critics seem to claim that it's really, really up there with and can hold its own against the rest and the best. Now, will that will that be able to demonstrate that, you know, uh, a newbie company, and Seiko is not new, it is old, but it is new in the world of luxury. Yes, yes. Will that mean that it can overtake or surpass established uh, value pillars? I don't know. The answer remains to be seen, but I think that kind of neatly ties into what you're saying, right? Which is that it doesn't have to be a $100,000 or $200,000 Lange or Patek Philippe that can uh, that, that that has to manufacture a timepiece which is capable of top-notch quality. You can find it in brands which are not even Swiss. It's very true. And, and, and for those of you out there unfamiliar, like 
Grand Seiko won the GPHG award for the Constant Force Turbion this year, um, which I knew they would because that watch is phenomenal. And they're not cheap either. They're, they're very, very expensive. But if you look at, a, if you look at a, a Grand Seiko with a loop, there's not a single flaw on the dial. I mean, I was very late to the Grand Seiko game. There, I don't, there's no reason for me to own one because I don't really find them that appealing. But I can see how they are appealing. And they've taken the world by storm. They're huge in the world of, uh, they have a cult following. And I think to what we're talking about, I think there's so many micro brands and independent brands, which brings me to this point. What are your thoughts on like independent brands out there? Like, what are your thoughts on like, you know, the Romain Gauthier's and the MBNF's and, you know, all of these Lauren Ferrier and all these other brands who have kind of emerged as a result of Rolex, AP, and Paddock not being available. I think we have to look at each one separately. It's kind of unfair for me to brush everybody with the same uh, paint. Right. Uh, if, let's let's take a Laura Ferrier, who you're talking about, and who I had the honor and the good opportunity to interview several years ago in Basel. Uh, Ferrier was, uh, ironically, a former Patek Philippe man. He yep. used to work with them for several years. Yep. Uh, he, he also built many watches for them before eventually branching out and creating his own timepiece, his own signature designed uh, watches. He does them in very small batches every year. Right. Uh, and I think by and large has not steered from his business model of producing a limited supply. Uh, it's not for everybody, for, no. for starters, because again, they're extremely expensive. The, there's a waiting list uh, for maybe a couple of three years. And, uh, you know, it's its designs are far more simple, elegant, understated, all of the above, right? Uh, la la largely likely to appeal to a slightly older audience, you could argue. I think you could say a lot of opposite things about uh, a brand like MBNF. Now, Max Booster also, who has worked for big ticket brands, I think he worked for Partek, if not the others, uh, early in his career before branching out. Uh, he started something which he wanted to be, be celebrated and not of conventional design and clearly targeting a diverse audience across international markets and you could also argue for younger executives or younger uh, collectors now i think the trick lies in being able to sustain your dna it doesn't matter if you're small volume or if you're a totally funky or totally breaking all the established uh, uh, you know cardinal principles of watchmaking sure as long as you find a certain audience and you can keep you know catering to that audience I think you're on to something and the, I think the danger is when you start to diverge from what you say you're gonna do and start to uh, broaden your horizons and maybe compromise your own objectives which is where I think the the, the scary and the slippery slope some starts to come into practice, right? Um, I understand, and I'm not taking specific names here, no. but there are certain brands who are now doing things which they said they would never do. Yeah. You know, there may be companies who, who made watches that are thirty or $40,000 and they would never go beyond that. And all of a sudden you see that they've launched a special edition, which is maybe uh, a priced at a tenth of that. So how do you justify it? It has been difficult for the industry in the last three or four years, right? The big brands notwithstanding who've had the financial resources to ride through the storm. For a small indie watchmaker, it's, it's not an easy feat at all, right? To be able to, to sort of, you know, sail through what has been a very difficult economic uh, uh, 24 months. But I think, 
again coming back to my premise and to your original question amit what do you, let me toss the question back to you if you look at somebody like a romain gautier right yeah. uh, romain jerome my apologies and if you look at how they began their uh, initial uh, journey by using really rare materials they claim to use debris from the moon uh, the titanic of uh, uh, titanic titanic metal from the titanic and so on and so forth now these are novelty and and really sharp marketing gimmicks that can work and and they're slick to a certain extent right, right. you you are obviously also aware of a company called REC yep. right which uses bits and pieces from Porsches and Mustangs what do you see happening in terms of the trade off and the balance between smart marketing novelties and and the on the other side hardcore watchmaking where it's all about the movement Well I think I think we're returning back to that the movement thing whereas you know maybe 10 15 years ago these companies that had these gimmicks like you're talking about uh and again no one specific but companies like that that had these marketing gimmicks that used that as a tool to you know obviously expose whatever they were to sell more watches I think those things are dying like a fart in the wind right because at the end of the day Yeah. People really like a story. And not just a story, they like history, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time what we're seeing with these new brands, like Laurent Ferrier for instance, it's so interesting to me that he was a Le Mans driver. You know? Like he and his obsession with mechanics really came from that, you know? And that and that's such an interesting story. He was a watchmaker for Patek. Like he has that pedigree. But when I see these other brands that claim that oh you know this came from the Titanic or this was made out of you know whatever the Maharaja of whatever you know toilet or whatever whatever the marketing gimmick is I think that those things really die quickly they may they may go up very fast but they come down just as fast so I think mm-hmm. the key is for these brands Like I just interviewed the guy that founded and the CEO of Trilobe Watches out of Paris which also just won a GPHG award and you know he he makes 600 watches a year and he's like my biggest challenge is I have uh I have in my I have sketches and I have collections ready for the next 10 to 20 years already he's only 32 years old you know which is unbelievable to me and he said but i'm i'm constantly reminded that if i want to grow as a brand i have to take my time because uh doing it quickly will never last you know amit i think you hit upon something really important over here right if you look at uh i'm going to give you an example of what is interpreted to be a jewelry brand but it really is a fairly hardcore watch brand as well i'm talking about cartier right right and and cartier was uh, uh, a brand that is if i remember correctly the first truly international multinational companies right, right. and it was started in uh, obviously paris yeah. uh, and if i recollect correctly london and geneva if i recollect correct, if I recollect correctly, correct. right yeah. but i mean across three countries uh, cartier started is now you know fourth fifth generation company that has been acquired by the richemont group right. of late but the reality is cartier made fantastic watches right some of their uh, you know the tanks were worn by icons like muhammad ali have had uh, tremendous success in watch auctions at christies over the over the years and have become extremely collectible uh, you could argue that it's 
journey over the decades have been a mixed bag going through ups and downs with different models. Right. But they're extremely, but even today, they're extremely sought after. And I think the story over here that I'm trying to impress upon is, is that it takes a lot of time to build that sort of a reputation, right? And so for somebody like Cartier, which is, you know, a couple of centuries old and has been uh, burnished with its uh, reputation in terms of riding through war times and world wars and famines and, and bad markets, uh, it's something that has stood the test of time. I, I remember actually meeting somebody who was a descendant of the Cartier family not too long ago. Right. And she'd written a book about her uh, ancestors where she talked about how during one uh, downturn and it might have been a wartime economy uh, Cartier was actually selling things like cosmetics and flowers and chocolates in order to keep their ends going right right, right. I mean, you, you can't fathom you can't fathom something like that happening today no definitely but the reality is that you know there are these twists and turns and the fact that the company keeps bouncing back has something to say I, I think there's something else here that you're hinting at and that is it's how well a company looks after its history, right? Absolutely. I mean, so 15 or 20 years for a watch company to run is fairly, you know, small table stakes. Anybody can do it. But can you keep a watch brand going for half a century? Right. For 100 years, right? right. For 80 years. And I think that's really the, the challenge and the true test of time. And sorry to coin a, a pun on that. But uh, that's really where it comes down to. And, and the answer, fundamentally, and again, this brings us to a, a maybe at some point later down the road, a deeper conversation, right? Can you ever shake the, the hegemony, the dominance of the Swiss brands because they've been around for so long, right? I mean, they have such a history in terms of excellence and quality in, in watchmaking, innovation, and, and horology, right? Is it something that you can question or even challenge? Because it's so deeply ingrained in the minds of consumers in the world at large. How do you turn around and say that I make a more luxurious car than Rolls Royce? Right, right, right. As right. an example, can you, can you say that? I mean, and arguably, I mean, you know, a, a large multi-billion dollar automaker can make a car that will maybe equal or greater to it if it invests the money. But what about the perception? I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Well, which, which brings me to this point too, Pavan. I mean, if you look at the brands with serious history that everybody knows about, at least in the watch world, you know, the Omegas, uh, uh, the Omegas, the, you know, the, the Langas, uh, the Paddock. Well, pa- take out Paddock. Uh, believe it or not, people who are listening, if you don't know anything about watches, the top three brands in the world are actually independent brands, Rolex, Paddock, and AP. They're, they're not owned by a conglomerate. They're not owned by a group. A lot of times people forget that. So I just want to put that in perspective. Um, but, the, but the other brands with history, right, that are standing, the Vacherons of this world, the Blancpons of this world, the Breguets of this world, they're all owned by big groups. Now, would they, would they still be standing if it weren't for those groups? You know what I mean? Like, I often ask myself, like, you know, Rolex is a unicorn. Paddock is a unicorn. AP is a unicorn, right? What, what, what how are they stand? To me, it's uh, the question I have is how are these brands standing when you have, you know, groups that own 20, 30, 40 brands, right? That may not just own watch companies, that own, like, for instance, the Swatch Group, they own dial companies, hands companies, case companies, strap companies. Buckle companies, spring companies. And even, and even hairsprings, I mean, even spring hairsprings. Co- I was just getting to that. Springs. 
sprint companies, right? How do you, how do you, how do you get, you know, like, so I look at it like, you know, it's... And I think uh, what you're really saying is that if you do it right, if you build the story correctly, if you stick to your values, if you uh, retain your core audience, right? I mean, let's let's look at Audemars Piguet for a second, right? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, as you say, one of the top three independent brands. It has terrific resale value. It has extreme aspirational value. Uh, they're not easy to get. Yet, if you look closely, right, Audemars Piguet hasn't really tinkered around too much with its classic designs and with, his, with what is the Royal Oak and variations of the Royal Oak. You don't get Audemars Piguet in 30 different body cases and styles, right? Right. They're, they're not fooling around with what is their core expertise. I think you could somewhat argue the same for Rolex, right? The Oyster case is, is pretty much something that runs through the entire family of watches, this, barring maybe the Cellini, right? And if you look at most of the sports watches, they're very similar in the, in the way they're being decked out. Yep. Uh, the day just is, is 50 or 80 years old. Yep. Right? I mean, they haven't toyed with the basic design and the crown. I mean, you may see minor variations in size and metal and color and thickness, but essentially the template is, is pretty much the same. Uh, I think these are companies that have hit upon a certain formula. They realize they've achieved a certain level of perfection. And if it ain't and broken, don't, don't fix it. Something. <laughs> Absolutely. If it ain't broken, just don't fix it. And I think that's one mistake a lot of companies make, right? Is is not knowing saying when to say, no, we're not going to do that because <laughs> right. it's just not worth the risk. We have a certain DNA. I think it kind of harkens back to what you and I were talking about five minutes ago, right? Why do a bunch of Indian watchmakers last while some don't? And I think that has a lot to do with it. Oh, one million percent. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to see how this all unfolds. I mean, we've seen record-breaking things happen even during this pandemic, especially with the big three, right? Like Rolex, mm-hmm. the Daytona went up to fifty thousand dollars in the height of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like that's insane. Mm-hmm. You know the mm-hmm. the Nautilus and the and the Aquanaut and the Royal Oak also five to ten times their retail value, right? In the height of a pandemic, like in, mm-hmm. insane. Like you know the brands. I mean, I mean, if you look at the colored oyster perpetuals, the OP red, OP green, the OP yep. yellows, right? Yep. I mean, I mean, they were retailing for ten x, maybe five x, eight x on the aftermarket, right? I mean, Absolutely. essentially, you could argue at one level these are. These are simply uh, uh, basic entry-level Rolexes. They right? are. I mean, they have no complication. They don't even have date windows on them, right? Of course. They just have a colored dial. And, and they're selling for many multiples the original retail price. So, yeah, you, you had to scratch your head and figure out, hey, what the heck just happened over here? And I think part of it has to do with a very similar phenomenon that we've been seeing in the art world. I mean, uh, if you look at Sotheby's and Christie's, both of them just reported the annual results for 2022 and and the the sales were re- record breaking both of them have crossed 8 billion dollars in sales which has never been done before uh, the Paul allen the founder of microsoft who whose estate was auctioned off about a month ago uh, in a, in a lot of several dozen paintings five of paul allen's paintings went for over 100 million dollars each right. and i'm talking about art because i see the same phenomenon uh, sort of impacting the world of watches, right? It's, it's exactly the same trend line. I mean, you saw some crazy valuations. You saw wild trading happening amongst collectors. You saw an absolute shortage of vintage watches, even here in India. 
you would typically get vintage watches by the bucket load and if you if you did a pulse check and spoke to dealers on the ground they would tell you you just can't find them they're being shipped out by the plane load to foreign markets where there's crazy demand so i i think to some extent despite the downturn you saw people who were maybe captive at home yep. not vacationing not spending money on big weddings yep. and they wanted to park their assets and their funds in a place where they see where they felt uh, it was safe where they could go up value, yeah safe havens absolutely and i think the two asset classes that got even deeper were art and then watches oh yeah yeah and and i've said this many times and it goes back to my point about when we first started talking today that a watch is one item that you can take anywhere unlike the other items we spoke about you can't say that about a car you can't say that about a piece of art you cannot say that about wine you can't really say that about any other luxury item that you wear right that's what makes it so interesting that like like when i try and ask people so explain why rolex does what rolex does and they make more watches than anyone else nobody even though they've made less watches over the last few years or at least marketed like they're not available we all know they could hit a button tomorrow if they wanted to um and it's all about supply and demand but why are they make the most watches and yet they have the most brand value in terms of collectability right that's like insane yeah. despite the pandemic despite these crazy times Rolex has always been able to do that. They've truly are a brand that withstands the test of time. I I have to agree, you know, I think uh, and one of the reasons why I think they're able to do that is because I mean they just don't deviate from some of the core brand promises they make, right? right. I mean they do not uh dilute their engineering when it comes to the mechanics of the watch. Right. They don't uh slash prices yep they never have easily do they never have and they never have and i think the fascinating thing is rolex isn't a small volume manufacturer right i no. mean if you look at somebody like patek philippe my my back of the handkerchief guess is they probably sell 30000 pieces a year right rolex probably sells 900000 or close to a million Correct. pieces a year it Correct. by no means is is anything but a mass manufacturer yet it represents a uh, a a a very unusual and strange phenomenon where you have a luxury brand that sells mass volumes but has the positioning and the the pricing power of a really prestigious uh uh sort of a a label right and i don't think you see something like that in any other product category in any other accessory. well well they're the so, gold standard i mean you look at any brand that does a dive watch do they not in some way shape or form try and copy a submariner Right? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody from its own sister brand to Tudor to you could argue the Prospect Seco Turtles to to a variety of other brands have some in some way or the other, right? Similarities to the Submariner, which is the original classic as you and I know. But uh how does that happen? Why is it that Rolex seems to have that? And I think again it goes back to storytelling and also some very hardcore and factual milestones in innovation right i mean whether it's the the depth that the deep sea has gone to whether it is the uh the waterproof and the the cosc specs that its explorer has retained or whether it's the innovative uh seconds and split seconds timing capabilities that the cosmograph has had for for many many decades i i i think they've chanced upon a certain uh, trend line of stories 
stuck to that narrative and ensured that they keep delivering quality time after time and i think what am i saying in many ways amit what i'm saying is that i think it just comes down as boring as it makes sound mechanical consistency consistency in just doing what you really do well again and again and again and again r- repetitiously boringly so but making sure the product comes out the same every single time and i think if you can crack that formula you'll start to realize that rolex has been able to achieve everything because of some of these principles i couldn't agree with you more and i think that's a that's a great uh, way to end um but i just want to thank you pavan for your time i mean i know you're a busy man uh pavan has written a bunch of books um he's been in a bunch of documentaries he's uh he's a humble guy and he continues to innovate and explore through his fascination of things that are very interesting whether it be cars watches anything to do with luxury so thank you so much pavan hey amit it's a great pleasure to be on the show man and look forward to catching up with you real soon thanks brother